Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of firearms, war, and death. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Pop quiz, Molly. For the big money, who shot Alexander Hamilton? That's an easy one for any trivia fan. It's Aaron Burr. Nailed it. Today, a lot of people know Burr's name because of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. In the play, he's portrayed as an unprincipled politician who will say and do whatever it takes to get ahead. That's right. But before the musical brought him back into public consciousness, Burr was thought of as a fairly obscure historical figure. That's what made him a mainstay of trivia games. He shot a founding father, then disappeared from the history books. He was both famous and forgettable. At least, that's what you'd think if you only know the mainstream story. Dig deeper, and you'll find that Burr's ambition led him to some very memorable places, including a diabolical plot that involved rebellion, spies, war, and treason. Sounds like he deserves his own musical. If he had one, it would be a high story. Because if you believe the allegations, Burr hoped to steal his own country and lead it not as a president, but as emperor. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals for free on Spotify. This is a special one-part episode on Aaron Burr. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, Burr was a rising star in American politics. He served as U.S. Vice President under Thomas Jefferson, and many thought he'd become Commander-in-Chief. But after killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel, Burr was ostracized. Facing political obscurity, he undertook an ambitious plan to reinvent himself in the American West. Some say by creating his own country. Today, we'll dig into the events that led to Burr's downfall. And we'll do a deep dive into the one big conspiracy theory that surrounds Burr's life. That he tried to form his own breakaway republic and become emperor. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. 
So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. On the morning of July 11, 1804, Vice President Aaron Burr gripped a pistol in his hand. The 48-year-old marched 10 paces and turned. He aimed the barrel at his opponent and pulled the trigger. That gunshot became one of the most famous moments in American history. Because Burr's opponent was none other than beloved founding father and former Secretary of Treasury... 47-year-old Alexander Hamilton. According to testimony by Hamilton's assistant, Hamilton threw the duel by aiming above Burr's head, but Burr's bullet struck true, catching his opponent in the abdomen. Hamilton died the next day. Burr became one of the greatest villains in American history. Before we get to the details of that duel, let's jump back to what set the stage for all these events, the U.S. presidential election of 1800. In researching this episode, we found David O. Stewart's book, American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, helpful. Stewart is a Yale educator, lawyer, and writer who specializes in nonfiction and American history. According to Stewart, in 1800, Senator Aaron Burr was on the shortlist of people who could become president. Not only was he a decorated veteran of the American Revolutionary War and a rising star in New York politics, he was regarded as being ruthlessly ambitious and unusually persuasive. With so much going for him, a lot of people thought Burr's turn in the White House was coming. All he had to do was wait his turn. And the wait turned out to be shorter than expected. In 1800, President Thomas Jefferson needed a running mate for his campaign against incumbent president John Adams. As a Virginian, Jefferson had a lot of critics in the Northeast. He wanted someone who could help carry states like New York and Massachusetts. Aaron Burr seemed to fit the bill. So Burr joined Jefferson's ticket as vice president, a position that set him up to possibly become the next commander-in-chief once Jefferson left office. But that changed when something unexpected happened. Back then, the U.S. Constitution had some unusual election rules. 
Whoever won the most votes became president, and the candidate who came in second was VP. It didn't matter whose ticket you were on. The way this played out in practice was a state's electors voted for the party's presidential candidate. Then all but one of the electors voted for the vice presidential candidate to ensure that individual came in second. But in 1800, there was a mix-up. Though Jefferson did beat out Adams, Burr and Jefferson tied for first. To break the tie, there was a vote in the House of Representatives. It should have been easy. The representatives would just go according to the original plan. Thomas Jefferson as president, and Burr would bow out of the race and claim the title of VP. But it didn't go that way. In the 1800s, the two main political parties were the Republicans, that's Burr and Jefferson's party, and the Federalists. Well, with their candidates out of the running, the Federalists decided Burr was the lesser of two evils on the Republican ticket, so they hatched a plan to elect him instead of Jefferson. Initially, Burr denounced the effort to subvert Jefferson's campaign. But then, letters from Republicans, Burr's own party, poured in, telling him he was unworthy of the presidency. Likely out of spite, Burr announced he'd actually accept the presidency if it was thrust upon him. Jefferson was outraged. Remember, he'd pick Burr as his running mate. They were supposed to be on the same side. And now, all of a sudden, it felt like Burr was his main opponent. It all came down to the House of Representatives. At the time, there were 16 states. To win, one of the men had to get a simple majority, meaning nine states. But over and over, the states were deadlocked. Jefferson had eight in his pocket, Burr six, with two states abstaining. Some Republicans looked to Burr to step down and endorse Jefferson, but he remained silent and the voting went on. Finally, after 36 votes, the two holdout states made their decision, ending the stalemate. Jefferson was president and Burr VP. It seemed that everything was settled in Washington. Things could go back to normal, except Jefferson was stuck with a vice president he distrusted. So for the next four years, he kept Burr on the sidelines and refused to involve him in any major decisions. One example was the historic land deal known as the Louisiana Purchase. In 1803, the U.S. bought France's gigantic territory in the center of the country for $15 million, or four cents per acre. Not only was it a bargain, but the purchase practically doubled the size of the U.S. It was a huge political win for Jefferson and his administration. Everyone except Burr, who was kept out of the deal. During this time, the VP became so isolated from the action in Washington, he moved back to his home state of New York. He set his sights on state politics and ran for governor in 1804, before his vice presidential term ended. It should have been an easy win for a sitting VP, but Burr lost in a landslide. It was a huge embarrassment, and in the aftermath, Burr looked for someone to blame. He found his target 
in Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton had disparaged Burr one week before the election, allegedly calling him a dangerous man at a dinner party and stating that he was unfit to hold the governor's office. The comments leaked and ended up in a local New York newspaper. Burr was livid. He demanded an apology and retraction. When Hamilton refused, Burr demanded satisfaction, meaning he proposed a duel. In the 17 and 1800s, dueling was a common way for American and European men to settle disputes. Even though the practice was beginning to lose favor, it was still so popular the state of New Jersey had a dedicated dueling ground along the Hudson River. On July 11, 1804, Burr and Hamilton met there, armed with 56 caliber pistols. They stood 10 paces from each other and fired. According to Stewart's book, Burr swayed from Hamilton's shot but wasn't hit. In fact, the shot hit the branch above Burr's head. Hamilton, on the other hand, didn't fare as well. He collapsed to the ground, bleeding from his side. He died the next day. Even though Burr was justified according to the rules of dueling, the public didn't see it that way. The New York Evening Post eulogized Hamilton. The New York American citizen suggested Burr had laid a trap for him. And the Charleston Courier said that where Burr's heart should be were, quote, cinders raked from the fires of hell. The legal system wasn't much kinder. New York and New Jersey charged the vice president with murder and issued warrants for his arrest. Burr was a wanted man. His political prospects dried up and his friends in New York and Washington abandoned him. After such a devastating fall from grace, most men would have avoided the public eye forever. But not Aaron Burr. The disgraced Veep was still as ambitious as ever. If his actions had made him a pariah in American politics, he would just have to build his legacy somewhere else. Like his own country, perhaps. If allegations are to be believed, in the aftermath of Hamilton's death, Burr began working toward his most audacious scheme yet, a plan to steal American territory and create his own country. It was to be a heist of epic proportions, and it constituted treason. If Burr was caught, he could face the death penalty. Coming up, Burr sets out to conquer the world, or at least Louisiana. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary 
and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Now, back to the story. In August 1804, only three weeks after the deadly duel with Hamilton, Vice President Aaron Burr plotted his comeback. This is where we start getting into this episode's one and only conspiracy theory. We don't know exactly what Burr was planning, but if the allegations are to be believed, his mission was to form his own country by separating the western region of the U.S. from the east. Specifically, Burr was targeting the land acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. It would be a poetic finger in the eye of Thomas Jefferson, who'd snubbed him by keeping him out of the deal in the first place. This was no simple undertaking. If Burr wanted to annex U.S. land and get away with it, he'd need influence, soldiers, and powerful allies. And he wasn't above working with old enemies. As you might recall, the U.S. had recently gotten out of a bad relationship with the British Empire, and King George was still nursing a bruised ego. Burr saw an opportunity. While he was still vice president, he sent a message to the British ambassador to the U.S., Anthony Mary. He explained the broad strokes of his plan and requested ships, soldiers, and 100,000 British pounds sterling an incredible amount of money at the time. To put it in perspective, in 1805, the salary of many English workers was one pound per week. It was a bold request, but Mary's interest was piqued. He forwarded the proposal across the Atlantic to King George and awaited a response. In the meantime, Burr started looking for others to rope into his scheme. He found an unlikely ally in the highest-ranking officer in the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson. Wilkinson was a logical partner for Burr for a few reasons. Not only was he an experienced commander, he also had intimate knowledge of the Louisiana Territory. In fact, Jefferson would later appoint Wilkinson as the territory's first governor. More importantly, Wilkinson was a known secessionist. In the late 1790s, he'd advocated that Kentucky sever ties with the U.S. But the thing that really bonded the two men was their shared disdain for Thomas Jefferson's politics. According to David O. Stewart's American Emperor, Wilkinson blamed Jefferson for shrinking the army to a third of its previous size and nearly making his rank as Brigadier General obsolete. So, when Burr came to him with a plan to stick it to Jefferson, Wilkinson hopped on board. While their interests aligned, Burr and Wilkinson were an odd couple. Where Burr was articulate and charming, Wilkinson was gruff and loud. He was a hard drinker and made alcohol-fueled proclamations. They were the last two people you'd think would work together. Despite that, during Burr's final months in office, the general moved into a house near the VP. The two became inseparable as they worked on their plan of conquest. So far, they had tentative support from the British. Wilkinson had access to soldiers and guns, not to mention he had firsthand knowledge of the terrain. A solid start. But there was only so much he could do from New York. 
So Burr headed west to the American frontier. There, he could lay low and avoid prosecution for Hamilton's murder while furthering his and Wilkinson's cause. Burr set off on his expedition sometime around May 1805. At first, he traveled by horse, then by boat on the Ohio River. One of Burr's first stops was Blennerhassett Island, a thin sliver of land in the Ohio River, barely two miles long, named for its owners, the Blennerhassetts. The Irish settlers had amassed a fortune as farmers and enslavers and built a giant mansion on the island. The family patriarch, Harmon, was enthralled by Burr's plan of conquest, but he thought focusing on the Louisiana Territory was a mistake. Instead, he suggested that they capture Florida, which was then under Spanish control. At the time, Spain was making efforts to expand its territories in North America, and some people believed that made war with the U.S. inevitable. Burr and Harmon likely saw this as an opportunity. If the U.S. led the charge to seize Florida, they do all the heavy lifting. Wilkinson and Burr could ride in with their own troops and carve out some prime real estate for themselves with minimal work. Burr was happy to tweak the plan if it meant getting another ally on board. The Blennerhassets offered money, soldiers, and their island as a base of operations. Besides, Burr likely didn't care where they set their new country, as long as he got to be in charge and avoid prosecution for Hamilton's murder. And now, with Blennerhassett Island as a base, Burr could continue his push westward. He traveled to Cincinnati, Louisville, and Nashville. In each city, he tried his best to drum up support for his plan. Along the way, Burr found kindred spirits, like a young Tennessee militia leader named Andrew Jackson, who agreed with Burr's parlor talk about taking land from the Spanish. The future president shared Burr's frustration with the current U.S. government and agreed to a business deal to construct boats and gather support in the event of a war with Spain. Meanwhile, Burr's friends were each working on their own parts of the plan. The British foreign minister, Anthony Mary, was still working on getting support from King George, and General Wilkinson was looking for ways to push the U.S. closer to war with Spain. He wrote to the U.S. Secretary of War, Henry Dearborn, and tried to get him to launch an attack on Spanish Florida. It almost worked. Dearborn started moving troops closer to Spanish territory to defend against a possible attack, which could have inflamed tension and sparked the war Burr desired. But before that happened, whispers of Burr's treasonous plan began to spread. Burr and Wilkinson had been communicating via coded letters, so it's not clear how word got out. What we know is that in January 1806, a U.S. attorney named Joseph Davies warned President Jefferson of quote-unquote, traitors among us. He advised that the country might be separated over a war with Spain. The president ordered Davies to report back to him if he learned who was involved. Little did the president know, Burr was coming to him. 
In March of 1806, Burr made a last-ditch attempt to salvage his career within the U.S., traveling hundreds of miles back to Washington for a meeting with Jefferson. According to Stewart's book, Burr had come to ask his former boss for a high-level job in the government. According to Jefferson's personal notes about the meeting, Burr lamented their falling out and complained that he didn't have a significant position in the government. Ironic, considering that Jefferson blamed Burr for breaking his trust in the first place. And his opinion on Burr hadn't changed. He refused Burr's request, at which point Burr lashed out. According to Jefferson's note from the meeting, Burr told the president he could do much harm to him. What exactly Burr meant by this isn't entirely clear. Later, Jefferson wrote that he assumed Burr was threatening to sue him over the election of 1800 debacle. But the statement could be interpreted as a clue to what Burr and his allies were plotting. Either way, Burr's political prospects in Washington were now unequivocally dead. If he ever wanted to be in a position of power again, he'd have to do it by working outside the U.S. government. But there was one major flaw in his plan. While Burr was plotting to betray America, one of his closest allies was preparing to betray him. Coming up, Burr is stabbed in the back. Now, back to the story. Springtime, 1806. After Aaron Burr's dramatic meeting with President Jefferson, he knew he had no future in America. If he wanted to secure his legacy, he'd have to do it through conquest. By this point, Burr was no longer aiming to take the Louisiana Territory like he'd originally planned. Instead, his attention had shifted to parts of Spanish-controlled Florida and Mexico. The main pieces of his plan were all in place. Burr had soldiers and military expertise from General Wilkinson, a backup militia from Andrew Jackson, and money and a base of operations from the Blennerhassets. Anthony Mary had never managed to get the British on board, but Burr couldn't wait for King George forever. It was time to strike. A coded message written from Burr to Wilkinson suggests that in the winter of 1806, he planned to take their force of 500 to 1,000 men and push down the Ohio River. From there, they'd march into Spanish territory and Mexico. But before that could happen, Burr was betrayed by none other than General Wilkinson. In October 1806, Wilkinson secretly wrote to Thomas Jefferson. He warned the president that a group of American soldiers were preparing to attack Mexico, which could trigger a larger war between the U.S. and Spain. You may be wondering why Wilkinson would double-cross Burr. For that, let's take a brief detour to the final days of the American Revolutionary War. Wilkinson had distinguished himself as a Continental Army officer, but after the war, he left the army, fell on hard times, and went bankrupt. In 1787, he made his way to New Orleans to find work. At the time, the port city was controlled by the Spanish. Out of desperation, Wilkinson finally got a job with the local governor, but in exchange, he swore an oath of allegiance to the King of Spain. Around that time, he re-enlisted in the U.S. Army. 
This time, however, he was a secret agent for the Spanish crown, exchanging information for silver. And so when Burr shifted focus to taking Spanish land instead of Louisiana, Wilkinson bailed. He tipped off President Jefferson to avoid a larger conflict between the two countries he was working for. Jefferson was furious. He even considered sending gunboats up the Ohio River to arrest Burr, but decided to hold off until he had more evidence. If he played his cards right, maybe he could even catch Burr in the act. For the moment, Jefferson sent an agent to gather information about Burr's plot and report back. But Burr's plan was already coming undone at the seams, as more people in the government caught wind of his actions. In Kentucky, a U.S. attorney filed charges against him for planning an illegal expedition against Spain. Luckily for Burr, the local judge ruled that he hadn't actually done anything wrong yet. According to him, the justice system could only take action after a crime was committed. But Burr wasn't out of trouble yet. His closest allies continued to cause problems. Even the ones who were fully committed to his cause, like Harmon Blennerhassett. The wealthy Irishman was one of Burr's biggest supporters, giving both money and use of his island. But he was so excited about the mission, he was perhaps too eager to tell people about their plan. In winter 1806, just weeks before Burr planned to embark on the invasion, Blennerhassett was at his local tavern. In the process, he struck up a conversation with a traveler. The stranger seemed interested in joining their cause and invading Spanish territory. So Blennerhassett let him in on their secret plan. He even referred to Burr as a future king. The problem was, the stranger in the tavern wasn't some innocent traveler. He was Thomas Jefferson's secret agent. Within days, the spy reported back to the president. And on November 27, 1806, Jefferson published a proclamation warning the public that conspirators were plotting an invasion of Spanish territories. He also authorized the militia to arrest anyone associated with the expedition. While he didn't use Burr's name, he didn't have to. There had already been gossip of Burr's treasonous schemings amongst journalists. Suddenly, Burr was back in the limelight. Newspapers across the country speculated about Burr's motives. Did he want to rule Mexico? Divide the Union? Become a monarch? An emperor? No one knew for sure. Ironically, Burr didn't see the proclamation or articles yet. Back then, news traveled slowly, especially in the Western territories. So Burr was unaware of what was happening around the country. As far as he was concerned, the mission was going ahead as planned. He had a country to conquer. It was now or never. A few days after Christmas 1806, Burr met his soldiers at the mouth of the Cumberland River in Kentucky. Within days, they embarked on their invasion. Unbeknownst to him, his opposition was mobilizing too. Around that time, General Wilkinson instituted martial law in New Orleans, arresting anyone involved with or sympathetic to Burr's cause. 
Then on January 10, 1807, Burr's floating armada arrived at the home of an ally in the Mississippi Territory, only a few hundred miles from New Orleans. That's when he finally picked up a newspaper and found President Jefferson's proclamation. In the article, he read that Wilkinson had revealed the plot and even released one of their coded letters, edited to make Wilkinson look more innocent. And to add insult to injury, General Wilkinson even put up a $5,000 bounty for Burr's capture. It was a staggering betrayal, to which Burr responded by calling Wilkinson, quote, the greatest traitor on the face of the earth. In what was likely an attempt at some damage control, Burr wrote a letter to the governor of the Mississippi Territory, asserting his innocence and blaming the entire plot on Wilkinson. It didn't work. When Burr reached the capital of Mississippi, authorities placed him under house arrest. In early February 1807, Burr faced trial in Mississippi for his plot to invade Mexico. However, the prosecuting attorney dismissed the case because they didn't have proof that Burr committed any crimes within Mississippi territory. Once again, Burr skated free, but the walls were closing in. Even if he could beat the charges in individual states and territories, he likely realized Jefferson and the federal government were coming for him. So, Burr fled. For two weeks, bounty hunters and government agents hunted the former vice president. But it seemed that Burr's time on the frontier had served him well. He was no longer a prim and proper New York politician. He had become an outdoorsman, an outlaw. As a result, he was able to live off the land and evade capture. Then on February 18th, in a small town in the Mississippi Territory called Wakefield, a traveler stopped at the courthouse asking for directions. The stranger looked like any frontiersman, dirty and bearded, so the court official, Nicholas Perkins, didn't take much notice. He gave the man directions to a local soldier's home. After giving it more thought, Perkins thought there was something odd about the encounter. Then, he recalled the news of Aaron Burr on the lamb. So he hurried to the local sheriff, and the two rode out in pursuit of the traveler. When Perkins and the sheriff finally caught up with the traveler, he looked about as far from a vice president as you could imagine. He wore a broad-brimmed hat, and on his belt was a butcher's knife and tin cup. But, as they'd expected, this rugged explorer was none other than Aaron Burr. He was arrested and shipped back to the East Coast to stand trial for treason. Back in Washington, Thomas Jefferson did everything in his power to get Burr convicted. He even put up $100,000 of government money to ensure a conviction, a huge sum at the time considering the average annual salary was less than $1,000. Jefferson had a problem, though. While it was clear that Burr had been up to something, he hadn't put his plan into action yet, which meant proving his intentions would be difficult. The main evidence against him was the letters he'd written to Wilkinson, but at the trial, Burr argued that those had been faked. 
In the end, the jury deliberated for only 25 minutes before returning with their verdict, not guilty. Burr was safe from the hangman's noose. After the trial, Jefferson pursued additional charges against him, but nothing ever stuck, officially at least. Even though he escaped the death penalty, Burr was eviscerated in the court of public opinion. Not only had he murdered Alexander Hamilton in a duel, now he was a seditious traitor. In 1808, Burr fled to Europe, finding sanctuary in Britain and France. While there, it seems that he kept working toward an invasion of Florida and Mexico. He even wrote letters to Napoleon, hoping to enlist his help. No one ever took him up on the offer. In 1812, having struck out again, Burr changed his name to Edwards and returned to New York to practice law. There, he lived the remainder of his life in relative obscurity. Which brings us to the end of this conspiracy theory. That Aaron Burr tried to conquer and rule his own territory in North America, initially by peeling off U.S. land and then by instigating war with Spain. For me, I think this theory has a lot going for it. There are eyewitness accounts, coded letters between him and Wilkinson. Burr looks guilty. I agree, it is compelling. But there was no proof that Burr committed treason. It's possible that the plot was all made up by Jefferson and Wilkinson. It's possible Wilkinson forged those coded notes to curry favor with Spain and the U.S. True. But one thing's clear. Burr was an ambitious man with a preternatural desire for power. He yearned to be in the limelight and was willing to cross dangerous lines to get there. Ultimately, he got caught in a web of his own design. Burr's ambition cost him his reputation and his career. Whether or not you believe he committed treason, his legacy speaks for itself. Today, when he is remembered, it's almost always as a villain and a failure. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify podcasts for free on Spotify. For more information on the Burr Conspiracy, amongst the many sources we used, we found the PBS series American Experience and David O. Stewart's book American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America, extremely helpful to our research. If you have a personal relationship to the stories we tell, please send a short audio recording telling your story to conspiracystories at spotify.com. We're here with a new episode every Wednesday. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Adam De Silva and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, 
researched by Brian Petrus, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Russell Nash. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy.